Greetings, all the 99 percenters. This is your host, Dr. Jack Rasmus. This is Alternative Visions. Okay, the topics that uh, we want to address today. Uh, interesting article here in the Wall Street Journal acknowledging finally about the decreasing reliability of U.S. economic statistics. For them to admit something like this is, I think, significant. And they say uh, correctly that, uh, wow, something must be wrong because, uh, wow, these revisions that are going on to U.S. data, particularly jobs and price data, um, you know, are really wild. They're becoming... Uh, more often and more severe, and there's the magnitude of the revisions. You know, the Labor Department, Commerce Department issues preliminary statistics in its first reports, whether it's jobs or GDP or whatever, you know, and then they come out a little later, like weeks later, three, four, five, six weeks later, with a more accurate revision to the original data. Uh, and then they even do a, maybe six months down the road, they do, or three or four months, they do another revision. And then after so many years, three, five years, they do a general revision. So these revisions are supposed to be more accurate, but the revisions are becoming greater in magnitude. In other words, the initial estimates are increasingly less accurate. So the revisions are coming more often, and they're bigger, you know, greater revisions. Uh, and uh, the Wall Street Journal indicates that, oh, this is an indication that, you know, maybe this data is not so accurate. Uh, if we got to revise it, you know, significantly and more frequently. And... Uh, you know, I've been saying this for some time, especially after COVID. As I've been arguing, uh, COVID has uh, fundamentally in some ways upended the U.S. economy. Uh, you can see it in labor markets. You know, people uh, won't working from home now. They don't want to go back. Uh, and other indicators in the labor markets, uh, they're not really picking up accurate, accurately, in my opinion, people will... Uh, who have dropped out of the labor force or uh, people who uh, are just missing or, you know, there's lots of ways I've been talking about uh, the statistics on, on the jobs and on the labor market itself. Uh, but uh, product markets, you know, the pricing and uh, new markets, they're not picking them up uh, and they're overestimating old markets. You know, the CPI, Consumer Price Index, gives certain weights to certain kinds of goods and services uh, in its calculation. You know, like food, because we spend more of our, our uh, you know, income on food. You know, it's, let's say 40% on food, whatever. I'm not saying that's what it is, but, you know, that's one of the reasons for weights on lodging you know, housing and rents and mortgages and stuff, that gives a bigger weight. Certain things give uh, are given weights in the statistics for uh, inflation estimation, right? Well, I think COVID has upended uh, uh, the purchasing patterns so that uh, uh, the weights need to be changed. We're giving too much weight to things that aren't being bought as much and not giving enough weights 
uh, in the CPI calculations uh, to other things. Uh, so that's an, you know one way that um, inflation is not as accurately estimated as it, as it used to be. The weighting problem, uh, you know, weights like heavy weights uh, in uh, in the CPI index, and you could say the same about the other in indices, price indices. You know, there's three indices, uh, CPI, which is composed of about 450 most purchased goods and services. Uh, and then you've got uh, PCE, uh, which is what the Fed uses, they're called the personal consumption est estimator. Uh, and that's uh, an estimation, not an accurate calculation, but an estimation of uh, all the, not all, but virtually all the millions of, of products and services offered in the U.S. economy. Uh, in other words, no one goes out and uh, every month and, and uh, estimate or, or takes the calculation surveys of all these millions of goods and services. It's impossible. We, they estimate it. They estimate it, guesstimate in some cases, right? Uh, and that's how they get the PCE, whereas the CPI, you know, only 450 goods and services, uh, you can actually uh, go out and survey that. And the government does, you know, they go to uh, stores and so forth, and uh, they, they look at the prices of those 400. So it's more like a, an accurate survey. The PCE is not a survey, it's just a... Based on the assumptions and the methodology is a big estimation. Uh, I don't think it's as accurate. And by the way, you know, the more goods and services you have in your denominator, uh, the lower it's, the average is going to be for those that are actually rising. Uh, and then there's a third index, price index the U.S. uses called the GDP deflator. That's even more inaccurate, in my opinion. Um, covers even more goods and services than the PCE and uh, certainly a lot more than the CPI. So you got these three indicators, um, and the PCE uh, comes out at around, so far and latest, around 3 to 3.5%, three whereas the CPI, you know, is uh, still up there at 5 to 6%. GDP deflator, we don't know until GDP comes out at the end of the year uh, what that will be, but it'll be even lower. And by the way, the lower the estimation of prices, inflation, the higher the statistic you get for real economic growth. So if you can lowball you have a very conservative GDP deflator index, you're going to definitionally uh, raise the output for the economy, GDP. That's a big problem. And my point here is that these methodologies from CPI to G GDP um, have been upset by changes in the economy under COVID, labor markets, product markets, even financial markets. They've been upset. And uh, the bureaucrats who do these uh, statistical estimations here, whether it's the Labor Department uh, or the Commerce Department, um, haven't kept up. Uh, 
You know, bureaucracies move slowly. Uh, and I think they're, you know, trying to catch up here. There's some new studies going on to try to make these these indexes more accurate, but um, it's going to take time. Uh, you know, you got to understand fundamentally when these numbers get reported, they're statistics. What's a statistic? It's a manipulation on the real data, the real number, right? Uh, so it's not the actual number. It's a manipulation, a methodology. And there's all kind of methodologies. You know, the most noted is the seasonality adjustment, you know. But all these manipulations, well, not all, but most of them, are are designed to smooth out the data, to to make the data, whether it's jobs data or inflation data, whatever, less volatile up and down, right? So it uh, underestimates uh, inflation when it's booming, and it overestimates inflation uh, when you got a recession or something and prices are collapsing, right? It smooths it out around an average. So it doesn't look as severe, whether it's severe inflation in a boom time or, or severe deflation, prices falling uh, during a recession. Uh, that's an important thing to keep in mind. And, and that's one of the, the major objectives of a lot of the government data, to smooth it out. Uh, and uh, it's done in a whole number of ways with different statistical methods uh, that are used. Uh, so people need to keep that in mind whenever they get uh, a report in the government. Oh, you know, it's rising too fast. Oh, it's contracting too much. It's usually uh, closer to an average uh, than it is to an actual number. Right. So these revisions of the data in a Wall Street Journal article, September 8th, you know, uh, that article doesn't really go into depth, uh, but acknowledges acknowledges at least that there's an issue here because of these big revisions that keep coming more frequently, right? The monthly jobs reports, uh, for example, uh, are are an issue here. Uh, the uh, what's called jolt. Uh, job Opening Labor Turnover, that's an acronym, G-O-L-T, right? JOLT. Uh, the uh, Federal Reserve looks at JOLT, how many, how many job openings there are to how many unemployed. But now if you underestimate the number of unemployed, which they do, you're going to get a worse-looking ratio of openings to jobs, right? And if you overestimate the number of openings, you're also going to get a worse ratio. So both are going on, in my opinion. We're overestimating the number of job openings, and we're underestimating uh, the number of, of uh, unemployed out there. So you get what looks like a real bad ratio. Oh, there's million, eight million openings, and uh, you know we, we only have uh, four million unemployed, and gee, why don't they just take those jobs? as if they all lived where the jobs are, right? Or as if they uh, were qualified to take the jobs. You know, uh, I mean, a lot of the new jobs are in tech, and uh, it takes a certain qualification. But if you were a construction worker in uh, Cincinnati and got laid off, how are you going to take the job in Silicon Valley, California, right? It's not only geographically impossible for you, uh, 
you also probably can't afford, even if you were qualified, to make that kind of move all the way out to California. It costs too much now. Uh, and you probably don't, don't have the skill set for that. So to the extent that we have job openings to unemployed, there's a mismatch uh, for the unemployed. Well, it's because we don't have job training and, uh, much anymore. <clears throat> okay, so that's one reason why jolt statistic is irrelevant. But the other reason is, as I've said, they overestimate the availability of jobs. Why? Because if you look at tech, the tech sector where a lot of these job openings are, uh, the tech companies post jobs with no intention of filling them. Or, well, maybe we'll fill them when the economy picks up or something like that. Or, oh, yeah, we got to post them, um, but we really have people earmarked internally to the company that are going to take these jobs anyway. Or what goes on in tech, if it's a high-skilled position, uh, they post it. And they interview people with skills. Uh, and, you know, in tech, in interviewing now, say you're a software engineer or something, right? Especially if you're a data scientist or something. These companies will exploit you. How? Oh, they have you doing some of their work, some of their studies and analyses to, quote, tell if you really have the skills for the position. And they have no intention of hiring you. They have you doing this, their subcontracting internally. Anybody in tech out there knows that this is a problem. You know, you, to get interviewed in tech, uh, you go through like seven, eight different interviews at different levels of the company, and they're picking your brain all the time. And they're getting you to do these studies, you know, to give you a little uh, a project, say, oh, show us it, that you know what you're doing. Here it is, you know, and you do the project. They have no intention of hiring you or anybody. Right? But they're using it as a way of exploiting you. Right? Uh, and, of course, tech is notorious for exploiting entry-level people as well. You know, they actually have interns now who work for nothing. They hire these college students, you know, with some technical background, studying, whatever, to do work over the summer, just so the students can say, oh, you know, I worked for uh, Salesforce.com or whatever over the summer. It boosts their resume, but they work for nothing. Their exploitation rate is 100%. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so a lot of these things going on now in uh, the labor marketplace, driven by, you know, Evil Corp, which is tech, uh, and... Uh, they are really exploiting people. We'll talk about exploitation a little more uh, subsequently here. But um, what it means for job openings is that these aren't really openings. These are postings, but they're not openings. Uh, and then, of course, the unemployment is higher than they're indicating because when they give you this unemployment statistic, oh, 3.9% unemployment rate, as I've said many times, that ignores the 50, 60 million people who are part-time temp. It ignores them. It's only full-time employment. 40-hour-per-week kind of hires right? that they're really using to estimate the unemployment rate and the unemployment or employment, the inverse of unemployment, level. 
So the numbers of of unemployed are grossly underestimated. The numbers of jobs are grossly overestimated. So you get this, you know, real ratio out of whack here of two to one job openings to people who are looking for a job, which is totally phony. Ah, but, you know, the Federal Reserve looks at jolt as an indication of the health of the labor market. Yeah, they look at it. Uh, I think it's it's totally bogus to do so. That's no indication of the health of the labor market. Another problem with jolt and for the unemployment survey in general that gets you this full-time number is that the number of business respondees to this government, uh, you know, project where they estimate job openings, labor turnover, right? The number of businesses responding has dropped dramatically after COVID. This was pointed out in this Wall Street Journal article, by the way, dropped dramatically. How so? Well, before COVID, about two thirds of the businesses that were asked by the government to respond, you know, how many job openings are you are you uh, posting and what's your unemployment, what's your jolt, right? About two-thirds of the businesses responded, provided that data to the government. How many responded now? 32%. Less than one-third of the companies are actually telling the government what their jolt is, right? It's, it's collapsed. The same thing for the establishment survey, for employment unemployment. This is the survey that the government uh, sends the big, bigger businesses, right? It asks them every month, well, you know, uh, how many people have you hired? What's your employment level? What's your wages? And so forth, right? Um, This is called the CES, Current Establishment Survey of Large Businesses. There's another survey that tries to pick up smaller business called the CPS or Population Survey. We're going to talk about that. I'm talking about the CES survey here, right? How many businesses are responding now to that request by the government to give them uh, data on their hiring and their employment? Well, before COVID, it was almost two per- uh, two-thirds, over 60% were responding. How many responding now? 42%. So, you know, the sample, if you can call it that, uh, is far un- far more unreliable than ever before. Companies just aren't responding to the government requests for data. And that means that these numbers are not as accurate. And I suspect that these big revisions occur because the government follows up maybe with these businesses that didn't initially respond and tries to get the data, get some more accurate data set from them, and that says, oh, well, okay, you know, we got to change the data. That may be one reason why this is going on. I don't know what the others are. But I do know uh, that the response rate here, even Wall Street Journal points this out in its article, the response rate is really low. So the reliability of the statistics have to be considered low. I'm talking about employment statistics here, right? Uh, JOLT and CES survey. And we get this magnitude uh, of change 
right? Uh, and we get it uh, big swings in the job numbers, right? They just came out with a revision here for the first six months of jobs, and they had to really uh, you know, downgrade their estimate by 250,000. Well, you know, month to month in the first half of the year, they were reporting all these you know, big job gains, and I'll say, well, gee, they really weren't there, maybe, <laughs> you know, and a big revision. Big revision. And then in inflation, we have other statistics uh, methodologies that are really questionable uh, whether they should be included, but they are included to get a more conservative inflation number. I've talked about them before. One is this ridiculous thing called owner equivalent rent. This is the nonsense where the government says that homeowners with mortgages or maybe homeowners in general, pay themselves the rent. What an oxymoron idea. Ah, but you know, it lowers the average rent increase. As I said before, there's about 50 million, 48, 49, 50 million uh, rental units in the U.S., right? 50 million roughly, right? People actually in true rents, apartment buildings and renting homes and so forth, right? There's about 50 million also uh, uh, owned units. People own their homes, right, or own their condos or whatever, right? Uh, and, you know, the true estimate would be for those who are actually paying rents, uh, but they add, they double the denominator by saying, oh, you know, Homeowners pay themselves rent, too. The bigger the denominator, the lower the number you get. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, instead of basing actual rent hikes you know, on 50 million, they base it on uh, uh, 100 million. And the average, see, the, the average they come out with is 4, four to 5% rent hikes. Well, anyone believe that rents are going up 4 to 5%? I got a bridge in Brooklyn I'll sell you. Look, you know... Nonsense, nonsense, owner equivalent rent. And then we got other dumb stuff going on in, in, in the inflation index. Uh, one is called hedonic pricing. What is that? Oh, that's the assumption that, oh, we're going to lower the price of something because the quality of it has improved. Well, how do you measure quality? Well, Bureaucrats, pretty arbitrary to say the quality of a product has increased. So its market price isn't really what we're going to use to calculate the inflation. We're going to come and and you know benchmark a lower price for it. I mean, a good example is what's going on with uh, cell phones and and PCs and so forth. The prices never really rise much because the quality is being improved, right? And I'm sure they're doing that with autos as well. Oh, the quality. We got all these gizmos here in the auto uh, autos now, all these sensors on the cars and so forth. You know, well, that's quality increase. So the $60,000 uh, for that uh, new car is really only fifty, And we put that in with our phony weights and, uh, and we uh, lower the, uh, the CPI or the PCE or whatever, right? Uh, we talked about seasonal smoothing. That's going on a lot. I've talked in the past about new business development and how that lowers 
the employment and unemployment rate. Yeah, new business development. The, the assuming that new businesses created, net new businesses created six to nine months ago, we're going to take that estimate here. And it's very arbitrary because they don't know how many new businesses went under. They know how many are formed every month, but not how many go under because they don't get reported. You know, you go out of business, you don't report anything. Uh, if you go into business, you report. Uh, but they assume what the... Uh, exit rate is, and they come out with a net number for new business development, and they arbitrarily assume how many employees associated with the new business, and they take that number from six, nine months ago, and they add it to this uh, uh, CES survey now, of which only 42% of business respond, and they come up with a total data number, and then they do their seasonality adjustments and all the other adjustments on it, and come up with the statistic that they report to you. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, that's, I'm just scratching the surface of all the um, methodology tricks and so forth that go on, uh, both in the job numbers and in the inflation numbers uh, and in GDP numbers uh, to get you the data that Biden runs around and says, oh, we're doing so great. Yeah. But remember, this data is increasingly inaccurate as reflected now in these big revisions after the data is initially released, these big revisions going on, right? That, that's like a, a, a symbol or, or a, of what's, you know, what's really the problem underneath. You know, we shouldn't have these big revisions because that indicates there's something fundamentally wrong here uh, going on. Well, I just scratched the surface on some of the fundamentally going wrong uh, factors here. Okay. Uh, so let's talk about uh, a little bit more about uh, inflation here. You know, last week I did uh, get into this quite a bit, uh, how Biden is spinning the inflation and job reports here to make it look like Bidenomics is so great, right? Yeah, if it was so great, you know, why is his, uh, his ratings, disapproval ratings now almost at a record low? Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure which, uh, which presidents at this point had a lower uh, rate, but I, I saw a survey of this poll uh, compared to other presidents in the past, and uh, he was uh, second from the bottom. Second from the bottom. In other words, his disapproval rating is uh, almost the very worst of any of the presidents at this point in their campaign. Yeah. Well, if we were doing so great here, you know, economically, uh, why would he have uh, such a low approval, a high disapproval, low approval uh, rating here? Maybe Bidenomics is not as great as they're saying, right? And uh, let's let's look at inflation. You know, last week I said uh, uh, inflation has bottomed out, possibly, and uh, it may be rising from this point on. Now, uh, look at look at uh, housing inflation. It's going back up. Prices of housing are going back up. And if housing prices go up, rents will go up because rents follow housing, right? Yeah. Well, 
wait a minute, why is it going back up? It fell just four months. Housing prices fell just four months earlier this year, at the beginning of the year, and now they're slowly, steadily creeping back up. Well, what's driving that? Well, very clearly, pre-existing homes data just came out, and um, it shows that the supply of available homes is worse than the demand for the homes. You know, mm -hmm. it, prices are functioning, all things equal, of supply and demand. The more you demand something, the more businesses will raise their prices. Demand drives up prices. And conversely, declining supply will drive up prices. So, you know, prices are, uh, you know, the result of this play between supply and demand. And there's exceptions to that have to do with monopolies and so forth. But uh, basically, what's the problem? The problem is the supply force, supply has declined so much that the demand, uh, the effect on, on prices of supply contraction is greater than the effect on demand. Of course, demand is also down because you've got uh, mortgage rates over 7%, right? But supply is even worse. So you're driving prices back up. Well, wait a minute. You know, the interest rate thing uh, with the Federal Reserve driving up interest rates, including mortgage rates, is supposed to slow down uh, and cause a contraction or a decline in housing, which would then uh, lower the price, cause prices to go down. Well, we had a little bit of that for a few months, but the slowest amount, uh, the, the, the weakest uh, inflation correction in housing that we've ever seen here is just four months, just a little bit. I think 1.9% or something uh, in house prices, and they're going back up again, right? Even though rates are at 7%. Well, why? Well, people are still buying homes, even at 7%. Why? To the extent these homes are available, supply is available. Because they expect, oh, we'll just refi. Rates are going to come down again pretty quickly here. We're going to be in a recession or whatever. And then we'll just refinance after the rates come down. We'll, we'll, we'll eat the 7% mortgage rates, and uh, then we'll you know refinance. Uh, so... That's sort of keeping some demand up. Demand hasn't contracted as much, even at 7% mortgage rates, as the Fed uh, had, uh, had guessed. And supply is worse. Well, why is supply worse? Well, that's because people who already have homes and mortgages uh, had locked in low interest rates, uh, two and a half, three and a half percent, when the Fed kept rates super low for too long, right? It enabled people to lock in two and a half, three and a half percent mortgage rates. And now if they wanted to move up, sell their house and buy a new one, they'd have to pay 7%. So unless they're figuring, oh, well, then, and, you know, taking a risk that we'll be able to refi later at a lower rate, uh, they're going to exchange 3%, 3.5% mortgage rate for 7, 7.5% 7 mortgage rate. Well, 
They therefore don't, don't put their house on the market. That creates the supply issue. That drives up the price once again. Uh, so that's what's going on at the consumer level in housing, why housing is is creeping, housing prices are creeping back up, right? Supply problems are worse than demand. Demand isn't as bad as the Fed thought it would be. Uh, the Fed has to raise interest rates far more than its current 5.5% and, and uh, drive mortgage rates uh, higher than 7% if it really wants to quash demand uh, in, uh, in residential housing here. And then on, on the builder side, you know, uh, you actually have a, a pretty good growth going on in new home construction. Not just pre-existing home, but new home construction. Why? Well, investors are building with an eye down the road a year or two from now when they believe interest rates are going to come down and people demand's really going to significantly increase here. So they're building not based on what's going on now, but what they think is going to occur 12, 24 months from now. And by the way, these investors, these big company investors, uh, aren't that much concerned about interest rates. Uh, they just take the higher interest rates to the extent that they borrow money to build houses. They take the higher interest rates and they pass it on into the price of the house. So actually lower in, higher interest rates from the builder side is stimulating inflation, not contracting inflation. You know, it's a supply side problem. Again, the builders are on the supply side. And uh, they're just passing on the interest rates. And especially those uh, new players in recent years, uh, big uh, finance companies and uh, shadow banks, you know, BlackRock and so forth, buying up and building uh, apartments and housing. Uh, they don't borrow from the Fed or from commercial banks. You know, they are banks themselves. They don't, they don't care uh, what the interest rate is. <clears throat> Uh, so you got that problem on the supply side as well. Right? They're impervious to five and a half Fed rate, seven percent mortgage rate. They just pass it on, and they have the opposite effect. They raise inflation when they pass it on, rather than contract it. So, in other words, as far as housing is concerned, Fed rates at five and a half percent don't have much effect on housing. There's other forces that are driving uh, housing prices and now driving them back up uh, than Fed, Fed rates. It used to be, you know, the Fed thought, well, we raise interest rates, we slow down the economy dramatically, you know, in the good sector in particular, you know, manufacturing and, and construction. We drive it down, causing uh, um, major unemployment and, uh, that reduces uh, available disposable income for cons consumption, uh, which causes business to lower their prices, right? It doesn't work that way very well anymore. Again, this is a product of these big changes in COVID in the economy and other changes that have been working their way into the economy in the 21st century as well. Uh, and to the extent that new housing prices creep back up, it will provide upward pressure on rents to continue uh, to rise. Uh, 
<clears throat> and rents aren't rising 5% for reasons I talked about. If you had a rent increase, it's probably more like uh, 20 to 50% uh, rent, rent hike. <clears throat> Okay, and I think lodging is like 40% of your budget. Uh, so when when that goes up 20, 30%, 40% of your budget, uh, that's like you would need a 10, 15% wage hike to cover it. And of course, you're not getting that, are you? Okay, and uh, okay, so that's housing inflation creeping back up. Housing, you know, it's maybe... Residential housing, maybe six to eight percent of the economy. Uh, commercial construction, you know, another five, six percent uh, of the economy. <clears throat> well, actually, about four percent each. Manufacturing, about twelve percent. Uh, the good sector of the economy: manufactured goods and housing. Uh, you know, or construction in general it constitutes about twenty percent of the economy. Most of the economy is uh, is services. Right. Uh, but goods prices are also creeping up now, not just because of housing, as I described it, but they're creeping up because of energy prices are creeping up. Global crude oil prices per barrel are, is now in the low $90 per barrel, and it's going to $100 per barrel, as OPEC and Russia and all these others uh, reduce their supply dramatically. And, you know, this has been going on for some time. And the response of high energy prices, gasoline, home heating, whatever, uh, by the Biden administration was to open up the strategic petroleum reserve of the US. In other words, increase the supply of oil in this country in order to dampen energy price increases. And it had a little bit of an effect here in 2022, uh, right? Uh, energy prices did come down because the global price of oil was like $60 a barrel. Now it's 50% higher. It's in the 90s. And, and the offsetting effect of the releasing the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve on supply is now virtually exhausted. Uh, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is at its lowest uh, magnitude or volume than in decades. In other words, uh, Biden's thrown this onto the market. Uh, it's uh, had some effect, as well as the $60 per barrel oil uh, in the past, uh, in lowering energy prices over 22, 23. But now that's ended. Now you got uh, crude oil prices rising for reasons I stated, right? And you have no strategic petroleum reserve to throw at it. So now uh, energy prices are rising again. Yeah, for those, those reasons, along with housing prices rising again. Oh. Uh, gasoline at the pump out here in Northern California is already $6 a gallon again, creeping back up. And it's still rising after the Labor, Labor Day holiday. Yep. And we're going to see natural gas and home eating, heating oil this winter rise as well. Why? 
because uh, of Biden's sanctions on, on Russia energy to Western Europe. The U.S. sanctions and politics have driven uh, Russia out of Western Europe economy, especially its energy economy. And who has stepped in the vacuum? U.S. oil companies and gas companies. They're selling now uh, to Western Europe, but at a price that's in some cases twice of what the Russians were providing. That's the effect of sanctions. That's why Germany's in recession. Germany's in the deep funk. Uh, the UK is in the deep funk. Uh, other Northern European economies, Netherlands and others, are in trouble. Uh, Europe is really, you know, in the beginning of a recession. Although they fudge the data to make it look like it's just, you know, stalled out, stagnant, stalled out. The Brits are doing that a lot. Oh, you know, uh, they're not in a recession. There's just no growth going on. Nonsense. Because remember, if you underestimate your inflation, you boost your real GDP. Favorite way of making it look like your economy is growing. Just keep your inflation estimates low or lower them, which increases your real GDP that gets reported in the media, right? Okay, so natural gas and home eating oil will rise in this country because this stuff's being shipped to Europe. Yeah, and uh, once the demand picks up and when the weather changes, whoa, watch it. Watch, watch these utility companies gouge the hell out of you. Another case of monopolies, price gouging. You know, utility companies are monopolies. And they're supposed to be regulated by the government, but they're not regulated very much. You know, the government, the bureaucrats at the state level are in bed with these companies. And they pretty much, you know, there's revolving doors between them at the national level and the state level, between the regulators and the companies themselves. And uh, they don't do much to control the prices <clears throat> of, these, uh, of these utility companies. And, and it's going to go up. Because the, the price of the natural gas they buy from the oil companies, utilities buy from the oil companies, is going to go up and they're going to just pass it on to us. And you're going to see even more energy inflation this winter. Okay, so another reason why prices inflation are creeping back up. Another one is food inflation. You know, uh, food prices came down in the spring because we have a harvest of veggies and fruits, right? Well, that harvest is over and it's going to go drift back up. Uh, the grain deal in Russia and Ukraine has ended. Grain prices are creeping back up globally as speculators in these grain markets take advantage and uh, do what they always do and drive up prices. You know, that's going on. Uh, so we're going to see grain prices, baked goods, uh, and so forth rise here, uh, which they probably already are beginning to do, uh, because the bakery companies are monopolies and are engaged in chronic price gouging. Right? Uh, processed foods in general in the U.S. are, are monopolistic here. Uh, I, I heard uh, Tyson, which is a big producer of chickens and therefore eggs, is slaughtering huge amounts of its chicken herds. Do you call chickens herds? I don't know. Uh, uh, to reduce the supply. 
so that they can drive up the price here, right? They can manipulate price by reducing supply. That's definition of a monopoly. And that's what they do. Three or four big players, you know, for chickens and eggs and uh, three or four big players for bread and, and uh, all this other stuff, right? Uh, and then, of course, services on the services side, uh, what we're beginning to see is, you know, services are still uh, still rising. The output of services is increasing here. Uh, so that is going to have some extent on, on boosting service prices as well. <clears throat> uh, but the point is, uh, the basic point is, uh, in the last uh, year, year and a half, goods prices, you know, it's food, energy, housing, and so forth, came down. Goods prices did respond to the uh, development um, of higher interest rates, but services did, did not. Services not service prices are still five to six percent, and the next CPI uh, report is going to be very interesting to see whether it still hovers around five to six percent, and whether goods prices are now beginning to creep back up after being stable and zero. Uh, if so, we got inflation forecasting uh, creeping back up. And what will the Fed do? Will the Fed raise interest rates further? Well, big debate going on. What will be the effect of a further rate hike? I think they're going to raise at least one more. And if the data is, is very negative here, they'll raise again in November. Uh, you know, the business media and, and market investors are trying to talk down the Fed. Uh, they keep saying, oh, they've reached peak rates. And, oh, rates are going to come down. Because every time they do that, the stock market takes up. Uh, so they, uh, they, they they like to spin that uh, to get an increase here uh, in, in stock prices. <clears throat> but we will see what the Fed going to do here uh, in the next couple of months, whether it's going to hold, yeah, even if it doesn't raise interest rates, it's going to hold at five and a half percent for quite some time, right? You're going to continue to have rates and prices at least where they are. Uh, why is that? Because, uh, you know, uh, interest rate hikes by the Fed just don't have the effect they used to do. Uh, as I said before, the nature of what's changed in the housing product markets, you know, with these big finance companies involved, shadow banks involved, uh, is such that they just pass on the rate cost increase or they don't need the rate cost in rates because they don't borrow. They got so much internal funds or other sources that they can uh, to uh, uh, finance their, their building, right? Uh, so they don't, uh, they're not really impacted by rate hikes anymore the way uh, the housing sector used to be because of the changes, right? Big corporations, uh, they don't borrow from banks. You know, therefore, the interest rate banks charge is irrelevant to them. Uh, they are flush with cash, Uh for years of issuing uh, corporate bonds and commercial paper, right, or issuing more stock. All this brings in cash hoards, right? Or they can go abroad for cheaper 
uh, money market uh, borrowing if they want, since they're global companies. Or, you know, the government keeps giving them these big tax cuts and subsidies, which, you know, adds to their cash hoard. Uh, so big corporations, for all these reasons, they don't care what the Fed rates are. If they're going to invest, they're going to invest. They got all the other source of cash, right? They don't have to borrow. And that's a big change that's occurred in the U.S. economy in the 21st century, right? Uh, commercial and industrial bank lending is, is flat or almost flat, right? Uh, so, so what, I guess we can say, so what? You know, very small businesses are the only ones that are impacted by that. But, you know, small businesses got a lot of money under COVID. You know, very small businesses got almost a trillion dollars in COVID relief and grants. And then medium-sized corporations and so forth got a lot of free money from the Fed. Uh, so, you know, businesses aren't responsive to interest rate hikes at five and a half percent, certainly. Because they got alternative sources to fund their investment if they want to do that, right? Uh, all these um, changes that have occurred in the economy are not being picked up accurately and estimated by government statistics, right? So we're getting a misrepresentation here in this government data. And 5.5%, as I've been saying, is not enough to really cool down the economy. Not enough. Right? Again, look at 1980-81, where we had similar inflation levels and from 79-80-81, driven by supply-side forces, mostly global, you know, the oil price shocks and so forth. Now, what did it take to create by the Fed? What did it take to slow down the economy, crush demand, mass layoffs, you know, push down disposable income, therefore consumption, therefore prices on the demand side. What did it take? It took 15% interest rates. Now, the Fed can't anywhere near get the 15% because the banking system's more unstable now. Uh, so... It's interesting to see what's going to happen if inflation keeps keeps uh, creeping up. I think the Fed is not going to raise interest rates dramatically more, but they may raise it one, maybe two more times. But they certainly will keep it there for a while, right? Uh, a while meaning well into uh, next year, uh, 2024 election year. Okay, so... Uh, uh, that's the data reliability issue here <clears throat> and its impact on inflation and uh, jobs and uh, interest rates. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, gee, and I don't have enough time to really get into this uh, next topic here, but a couple of weeks ago I was talking about exploitation, labor exploitation, which is a big factor in this surge in corporate profits. Uh, that has been occurring under neoliberalism for the last 40 years, and it's accelerating uh, in the last uh, 20 years. Uh, and uh, I, I want to talk about exploitation some more, uh, because as the U.S. empire weakens and, and declines, uh, profitability for U.S. 
capitalist corporations will uh, similarly weaken and decline, and uh, they, corporations, capitalists, will take it out on the backs of their workers, uh, extract more from them, pay them less in various ways uh, to try to keep their profits up. They're, they've been doing this kind of anyway. Uh, and uh, that will intensify. Exploitation will intensify. Now, what is exploitation? Exploitation is when uh, what you pay somebody is less. Uh, you, you pay them less in various ways and keep it for yourself, right? You don't pay the full value that they earned. You reduce what their earnings are in some ways. Uh, whether it's inflation or whatever, you know, we'll talk about this. Um, or if the economy is growing, you just, you, the capitalist corporations, make sure you get all the benefits from the growth and you don't let uh, the workers get any benefits or very few benefits, right? So what, what you take from the growth uh, and the wealth created is, you know, all yours and you give very little to the working class. Uh, that's the way it's been going on mostly uh, in the last 40 years. It's not so much the more draconian version of you drive down what the workers are getting and you keep that share for yourself, uh, although that's going on in some places too. It's mostly that all the wealth created you're going to uh, arbitrarily accrue for yourself and the government going to help you do that in various ways. Uh, well, that's going on. Uh, if you look at productivity, which is an indicator of the increase in wealth in the system, uh, productivity has been rising since 1980 at a pretty good uh, pace until just recently, COVID, COVID impact on productivity. Uh, it's been rising, but workers haven't gotten any of that share virtually, you know. Uh, wage increases, real wage increases, uh, have not kept up, particularly for the median level, uh, for supervisory non-production work, non-supervisory non-production uh, workers, uh, their real wages have been flat at best. And of course, now it's going down as inflation is accelerating. So, uh, you know, the real core of, of uh, the working class and, and the labor force, 90, maybe 100 million people, um, have not had any real increase in their wage income, uh, real wage income adjusted for inflation, for spending, right? Uh, even though productivity has increased far more wealth, well, that's all been uh, grabbed uh, by corporations, by the capitalists here. Um, workers have responded in various ways to try to uh, maintain that lack of wage income growth. Well, they put other members of their family to work. They took second and third jobs here, you know, on top of it. Uh, they've uh, adjusted their um, their budget so they purchase used cars instead of new, new cars or they buy uh, foreign goods here, you know, at Walmart, all oh, that's ending. Uh, so, you know, that's how they've, they've uh, uh, addressed the lack of real wage growth. Uh, as uh, business and capitalists have uh, grabbed all the all the wealth created from an increase in output in GDP measures, in other words, uh, for themselves. And you see this in relative share, what's called relative share 
income share of national income, uh, uh, labor share has gone down, um, and uh, business corporate share has gone up. You see this in ratios of CEO pay to workers, average workers in the companies. It used to be in the 1970s, uh, 50 times. The CEO would get roughly 50 times more than uh, the average worker in his company. Well, now it's three to 400 times. Right? Uh, that's the uh, the capitalists who are working for the capitalists, you know, the CEO, senior managers, right? You also see it, uh, thirdly, not just productivity data, relative shares data, CEO worker ratio data, but you see it in the wealth of the one and the income of the 1%. As I said in a previous, uh, I'm kind of recapping here, a previous show, uh, Emmanuel Saez, a, a economist at UC Berkeley, uh, who has uh, created a, an analysis of uh, uh, how the wealth of the 1%, not the wealth, the income of the 1% has increased uh, over the last, uh, well, since 1913, ups and downs. Uh, and uh, since the advent of neoliberalism in the late 70s, early 80s, it's just been up, 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 1%. Uh, they, they capture all the wealth growth. Uh, and his statistic... Uh, show that after the 1991-92 recession, right, we had a burst of growth in the 90s in the economy, uh, the 1% grabbed 45% of the wealth and income increase uh, during that growth period in the 90s. 1% uh, got 45%. After 2000-2001 recession, right, uh, up until the 2008 crash, that 1% of households gained 58% of the growth between 2001 and 2008, 58%, so up from 45 to 58%. Now under Obama, after the crash of 2008-9 from 2010 to 17, right, the 1% got 92% of all the GDP wealth creation income, income creation from that recovery period, a weak recovery period, uh, but even more. So we have this growing long-term trend here. The 1% is grabbing more and more every time we have a recovery. Okay, next week I want to talk about exploitation in an even more basic sense of value exploitation. Okay, I'm out of here.